Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the home of Common Sense right here in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Never has Common Sense been more required than right now because we look around outside. There's a beautiful blue sky, uh, but there's trouble at mill, as they say up in the north of England, uh, because there's a lot of idiotic people out there who seem to think it's a good idea to stockpile everything before it runs out, without realising that by stockpiling it, it runs out. Very good. Well done. So, we awoke to the news that number 10 is telling everyone not to panic. They might as well have gone to the rooftops of Downing Street and shouted, PANIC! Just panic, whatever you want to do. Uh, the ludicrous consumers of this country are queuing up for petrol and anything else they think well, there might be a shortage of over the next few weeks. As ever, we need you to be our eyes and ears and tell us what you're seeing. Are there really people stupid enough out there who want to sit in their cars for hours on end just so they can get a few litres of diesel? Sadly, I think the answer might be yes. I had some calls yesterday from people saying they were spotting queues of cars outside petrol stations at 11 o'clock at night because they're frightened they might not have enough petrol to make it through the weekend. 034 499 We're joined by Richard Tice this morning, businessman, leader of the Reform UK party. He's got plenty to say about the mounting pressure on the energy business, the logistics, HGV drivers and the business of doing business. And also Boris Johnson's rather ludicrous claim uh, at the United Nations yesterday that it's rather lucrative to go green and it's very easy to go green. You know what I think about that. We'll also be asking about the latest abomination from Insulate Britain. Today, despite the Home Office injunction, they're blockading the port of Dover and most of them seem to be on benefits. Can't we just stop them being paid. Wouldn't that be the way forward? 03444991000. We're also going over to Denmark as well to get the latest on their fight against COVID, having declared it to be no longer a dangerous disease for public health. They have made the decision to stop testing altogether. They've become the first EU country to go back to pre-pandemic life. And that, I think, can only be a good thing. Royal reporter Rupert Bell's here as well after Meghan and Harry's latest attempt at stepping back from the public gaze by going on a tour of the World Trade Center Memorial in New York in front of hundreds of photographers. Must be really tough for them to keep those lives private. So 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Now, we missed him last week, so it's time to say a very good morning and a welcome, warm welcome back to Richard Tice. Richard, well, how the devil are you? Fantastic. Great to be back. And uh, it's nice to see the uh, the sun shining. Isn't it? Yeah. I think September's going to be uh, quite a good month when you look back on it and go, actually, it was better than August. Uh, without a question. I mean, mm. the, the sun just didn't shine in London at all during no, August. No, but, it's, a, it's brilliant. But, yeah. I mean, presumably this is all down to Insulate Britain, who've managed to create even more pollution, thereby don't, creating a beautiful blue sky for us to look at. Don't start. I mean, <laughs> it's just unbelievable what these people think they are doing it really is i think it's actually driving the whole nation mad i think it is at a time when you know there's some serious challenges that everybody faces with the energy crisis with with the bills going up and and these wallies these complete selfish disruptive clowns which is entirely what they are uh you know just thinking that they're 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 helping they're not at all they're actually they're stopping people getting to hospital appointments, getting to operations. They're stopping people earning a living. They're stopping businesses operating. Yeah. Everybody's trying to do their bit to get the country moving forwards again. Uh, and, and these folk are literally, they're literally trying to uh, stop the country and, and draw it to well, a halt. Well, they're interrupting the business of commerce, aren't they? They're interrupting everything. Yeah. And they are, uh, I, I just think it's, it, it's absolutely powerful. We all support the right to protest. But that does not mean the right to disrupt and obstruct mm. and to stop people earning a living. Right. And, and I think the government's, does... you know, the government started with this injunction, albeit belatedly. Yes. But I think they've got to, they've, they've just got to stop mucking about now. Mm. And the police have got to literally, uh, I think they've just got to lock them up. Yeah, I think they have to, because at the end of the day, they're not going to stop. Because most of the people who are involved in this organisation appear to be unemployed. Most of them seem to be living in council houses uh, or housing association houses. They all seem to have benefits. You know, I say we stop them having any of those benefits. If you want to have a council house, I'm sorry. If, you, if we catch you uh, demonstrating again, you're out. And you can go and live in a tent on Clapham Common. I mean, it's almost as though they've actually got a job, which is to protest. Well, maybe, maybe, somebody, somebody, maybe somebody's paying them. Well, who knows? Maybe someone's paying them. I mean, we well, don't we, know. We who, know but... that Extension, Extension Rebellion were paying people, weren't they, last... I think it was not this summer. We do know that. The there's, the, um, there's sort of suggestions as to who might be paying them. I wonder whether rogue overseas uh, people or, yes. or, or states or, or sort of uh, interests might be, you know, deliberately winding the situation... Who knows? Yeah. But, um, but so you've got some people who are on benefits. But I understood there are other people within this mob who um, actually are incredibly wealthy. They've got property portfolios. Oh, this is the guy from the Sun yesterday. Yeah, right? that's, so uh, yeah, the whole thing is, uh, it, I think it's driving people mad. It yeah. wouldn't surprise me if actually people are so cross they're deliberately just putting their foot on the, mm. you know, just to sort of. Well, there will. I mean, I'm the afraid, I'm afraid something driver. like that will happen because it's very frustrating being a driver in Britain at the moment anyway because the road systems are not coping well, with the partic- amount of traffic. Particularly here in London because Sadiq's halved the amount of road yeah. space. Well, I mean, when I keep hearing that there's no HGV drivers and there's not enough people to drive, I mean, there's no shortage of HGV lorries everywhere you go. And every people, every time I look on Twitter, I see people saying, I've been trying to get a job as an HGV driver and there aren't any. So you wonder whether so much of what we're hearing is nonsense. I mean, I was told this morning, for example, that the story that popped out yesterday that BP had closed five forecourts because of the lack of petrol. Apparently, that's over a three-month period, and it's an old story that came out last week. And so it's not actually current. So people are panicking for no reason. Well, I think we have, you know, BP have got to, in that case, um, got to clarify it. Because there is nothing worse, actually, as you quite rightly said in the intro, than creating a an unnecessary sense of anxiety, concern mm. that may lead to to panic. Mm. Actually, you know, as as has been said, there's plenty of food, there's plenty of fuel, 
uh, there's just the issue of, of distributing it. But if people are just remain calm, rational, then actually it will be fine. And occasionally, if there isn't 101% of everything on the shelves, no. it's not the end of the world. We've just got to get a, a sense of perspective. Well, this is it. I mean, when we, you know, for some reason, McDonald's ran out of milkshakes and people were actually complaining. I'm going, just don't have a milkshake. Yeah. Or if you really want one, go somewhere else and get a, a milkshake. How about just have a glass of milk or no, a coffee? I mean, it's not as if you're dying. It's, it's about having a sense of perspective, which is not uh, what we saw when Boris Johnson was talking to the well, UN. I'm glad you brought that up because I was rather taken aback that he had a, had a go at Kermit, who was universally loved by everybody. Well, Kermit exactly. Is. I mean, you know, um, Kermit is, uh, as you say, uh, a, a joy and a pleasure to listen to and watch. But but actually, the truth is, mm. uh, Kermit was right. Yes. It's not easy being green. It's not easy going green. And what I was appalled by was the Prime Minister's suggestion that going green was lucrative. Yes. Well, let's just remind ourselves that millions... of Freudian slip? Well, I think um, I think actually he really showed himself. Uh, it may be lucrative for Vladimir mm. over in Moscow. It may be lucrative for big businesses, uh, those that own energy generating yes. and, uh, and also companies. these, these subsidised green energy companies and, and, and the renewable these these subsidised overseas owned private equity groups that mm. own all the wind farms and the solar farms. Yeah. But let's be very clear: it's incredibly expensive for tens of millions of families up and down the country mm. facing hundreds and hundreds of pounds of increases in fuel bills this winter. It's not lucrative for them. It's painful. No. It hurts. And people are genuinely very, very concerned. And the other thing to remember, which again, I don't think there's been enough focus on, is that many businesses who are not protected by any form of cap are literally um, cutting operations, stopping operations, uh, activities. You know, we've heard about it with British Steel, for yeah. example. So, so then what happens? Well, maybe the Chinese owners of, of British Steel, which is another story, but I think it's appalling in itself. Mm. Maybe then say, oh, terribly sorry, energy is too expensive in, in the UK, so actually we're going to move the whole of British steel operations back to China. Yeah. These are all the unintended consequences. Right. You've got, obviously, the issue with uh, CF fertilisers. Well, how do uh, we get to the, that point where you have one company that shuts one operation down and suddenly the, the whole supply of CO2 well, is in jeopardy? It, it, it proves the flaw in the last two to three decades of government thinking that global just-in-time supply chains mm. will always work. That's fine on a sunny day when everything's doing what it says on the tin. Yeah. But the moment there's a hiccup somewhere along the supply chain, then everything stops mm. very, very quickly. If you, know, if you run everything hot all the time, at some point it's going to break, and that's what we've seen. And, and it just shows the, the unintended consequences, the idea that one uh, relatively small business that is responsible for 60% of... The CO2 mm. production, and it is confusing. Most of us think we're trying to reduce CO2 emissions, and yet one company is now being paid by the taxpayer, yes. thanks to Quasi, uh, Quasi Kwarteng, being paid to produce CO2. I mean, it is a bit ironic. It's, it's very a, ironic. It's a bit mad, isn't it? It really is. And also, I don't like the idea of Quasi Kwarteng getting up in the House of Commons and saying the lights will not go out in Britain, yeah. because you just go, we're going to be playing that back at some point in the future when the lights do go out. Because I, I said it last week on my show. I said, when he says there's no immediate concern, you know that there's an there's immediate, an immediate concern. concern. Because... Well, it's like them saying, don't panic, don't panic. You know. I mean, but what about the other thing, though, Richard? Because you're a businessman and, and you are, I would imagine, a relatively purist when it comes to economics. Are you comfortable with the government subsidising these businesses uh, in the same way that we were being asked to possibly subsidise energy businesses that were going bust? I'm not. I don't think we should be subsidising. No, uh, no, there are... 
when you've got a, 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 a an issue which is uh, of what I call strategic resilience or mm. strategic importance, which clearly the production of CO2 in order to, uh, you know, to continue the uh, food manufacturing, um, slaughterhouses, to continue for meat and things, well, use it in hospitals and yeah. things, then clearly that's nationally important. Mm. So you've basically got to be pragmatic yeah. and you've got to solve solve it. Um, and, and so I, I have no issue with that at all. You know, but what I do have an issue is that this government... Uh, conservatives have been warned for literally for years and years and years that we were running a very irresponsible energy policy. The idea that we outsource all of our gas storage mm. to the Netherlands, yeah. lovely people. But again, the moment there's a hiccup and there's a shortage of gas everywhere in Europe, do you think they're going to send our gas back to us? No. Of course not. They're going to use it themselves. I mean, it's just nuts. So we've literally got, I think in the UK, we've got about a tenth of the quantity of gas storage that most other European mm. countries have got. We've got about a week's worth. Yeah. Most people have got months and months worth. I mean, it's just, just it's so irresponsible. It's such short-termist yeah. thinking. And I was very struck by the headline in one of the newspapers that we face a winter of incompetence. Yes. And I think that says it all, actually, mm. about this government. Because we've been talking for many weeks, uh, even before this latest energy crisis hit, that, you know, the prices of energy are now becoming unsustainable. People can't pay them. You know, people are going, and, I'm, and I speak as somebody who is fortunate enough to be able to pay it, but, you know, my, my bill is going to go from something like 600 a year to, to about 1,000. Now, now that is not sustainable for an awful lot of people. And let's remember, a decade ago, we were a net exporter of gas. Mm. We are now a massive importer of gas. Yeah. We are paying huge sums to prop up Vladimir's profits, when we're sitting on our own gas, literally under our very feet across huge chunks yeah. of England, we've got we've got 50 to 70 years worth mm. of gas that was in the Conservative manifesto in, in 2017 that we would extract mm. it. But because of the eco-zealots and the lobbyists... Well, more of these unemployed hippies yeah. who are going so, to stand so around saying, you can't, you can't do that, it's they, they panicked uh, the government, mm. and so they've stopped it. You know, we, so we've got huge quantities of cheap gas of our own mm. under our feet. Yeah. And we should be re-looking at the new types of technology that make that safe and sensible to extract because that is the way that we become self-reliant, uh, which you, you need to be as a nation, uh, on something which is so yeah. critical as our energy. But isn't it ludicrous that we have reached this point where we do appear to have a kind of let's-see-how-it-goes style government? You know, they don't seem to have a real plan as such. They wait until something goes wrong, and then they sort of throw money at it. That's not governing. Um, that really is clowning around. Yeah. I mean, that, that is that is short-term, what's going to happen today, folks, mm. as opposed to some proper, contingent, long-term thinking. And I, I'm, I blame not only uh, the Conservative ministers, but also senior civil servants, you know, who part of their responsibility is to plan for the long term, to have the contingency planning. And it's in all walks of government, whether it's energy or whether it's what's the contingency plan for the NHS yeah. for a for a winter food well, we've crisis. we've got nothing sorted on that You've front. got no capacity. No. You've got no contingency. You've no. got no plan B. And it is it is incompetence at every in every department at every level of government, yeah. and it's just not good enough. And isn't it interesting as well that this week in particular, we're going to go to Denmark later on, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But this week in particular, COVID has barely been on the horizon in terms of any kind of political conversation. I don't think there was one question at PMQs this week about COVID, almost and, as though it's disappeared. Well, it, and in a sense, that's a good thing because basically we've been saying for for months we've got to live with yes. this thing, and and other challenges come around the corner, which of course they mm. have and they're biting us where it hurts so um, I think that's a good thing we are living with it yes there's 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 COVID around but there basically will always be COVID mm. around 
And the reality is, again, it's about leadership. We need our leaders to say, if you've got double jabbed, that's great. Yeah. That'll reduce the risk of severity of if you catch it, reduce the risk of hospitalization or death. But the reality is that loads of people who've been double jabbed are getting it. So people need to understand that yeah, well, it's, not hearing... a, it's not a source of concern. It's actually, you know, natural immunity, having caught COVID mm. is, is the best long term strongest immunity you can have well so, i'm having more and more conversations about you richard with people who say oh so and so's got covid somebody that we know and and you end up sort of having this conversation i can't believe i've never had it and it's that kind of conversation people are now well, that's because you're, you're extraordinarily big well, and strong and tough and well, basically covid took one look at you and no, said i'm listen, going elsewhere my body's so toxic <laughs> i've said this before that nothing could actually live inside it including <laughs> deadly germs but no the thing is that that's now the, the conversation isn't any longer one about fear really and i don't think people are frightened and yes people are vulnerable and yes they can make a judgment on that and not go out if they don't want to or not go into dangerous places but i think we're at that point now aren't we we are and I, but i think that's i actually think that's a good thing i think people have had enough uh, uh they're facing uh, you know they're facing real other challenges um you've got domestic increase in, in energy bills and as i talked about businesses you know if the energy bills for businesses are too high and the businesses start to shut down sadly that's going to mean that people are going to lose their jobs so you know this is really really significant mm. And I think this, uh, you know, this is this this story is going to, uh, you know, it's going to be the big topic for for many months to mm, come. I think so. Stay with us, Richard. We're going to talk about your show coming up on Sunday. We're going to talk a bit about the schools and the vaccination plan, the rollout, because as parents now, we're beginning to get letters, I think, from schools uh, asking for us to give consent for our children to be vaccinated. We're not getting one from me. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Richard Tice is here with us. You've got another show coming up on Sunday. It's going very well, your show. Oh, by the thank way. you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it's, it. It's a very much an appointment to listen to. Yes, I'm enjoying morning, it. Well, well as I, I um... drive my dog to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and so last week I had, instead of having my sort of monologue, I've, I've renamed it. It's my Sunday sermon. Uh, so. Um, uh, that's that's how I start off. Whatever's sort of really exercising me uh, during the week becomes yes. my Sunday sermon. And and this week it's actually it's going to be around uh, what we've been talking about this morning, the the energy crisis, how that's going to lead into the whole climate change debate, because mm. I think it's going to have very significant consequences. I think people are going to look at uh, what's gone on and say, hang on, uh, our bills are going through the roof. And then you're saying we've got to get rid of uh, these, uh, we've got to get rid of gas and we've got to have even more expensive yes. energy, which I mean, means surely, our bills are going to go even more yes, through the roof. And surely, I, I think it's going to be a really defining moment. And surely what the government should be saying is looking at this green tax that they put on our energy bills to say, well, can we somehow reduce well, that? Think, because that's, that doesn't have to be there. I think we've got to look at that. I've touched earlier in my shows about the ownership of our uh, energy generating companies, uh, the fact that huge chunks is, is owned uh, overseas by, by, by foreign investors making massive profits massive profits at our expense and I think we've really got to look at that mm. and say actually that's not I don't think that is the right way forward uh, you've, you've basically got um, overseas investors profiteering at the expense of British consumers uh, who are suffering who are genuinely mm. suffering so I think all of these things it's it's a really really big topical issue and I'm going to be talking about that on Sunday I'm going to be talking about the Wuhan I was documentary say, which um, you... that's also a fantastic documentary which I watched last night uh, what really happened in Wuhan is a one-hour documentary featuring Donald Trump a whole host of uh, whistleblowers Richard Dearlove the former head of MI6 as well produced by uh, an Australian journalist who is very very on it uh, yes. in terms of what's going on it's fascinating and, and, and what's really interesting now is of course 18 months ago anybody who wanted to suggest this was mm. a conspiracy theorist yeah. and that 
anybody who didn't buy into the mainstream media uh, consensus that this had come out of the wet markets. Mm. Now, actually, I really don't think anybody credible is still suggesting no. that that was the likely source. That somebody ate bat soup. Yeah. Really? I mean, really? Yeah. So uh, this, you know, this has moved on a lot. And I think that I, I suspect, actually, the Chinese communist regime are pretty anxious that the truth will out mm. one way or t'other. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, people will understand exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, I think absolutely right. And finally, Richard, the whole business of vaccinating children, um, I was saying at the start of this week, it seems to me that a lot of the schools are a little bit reticent, a little bit kind of unsure of how to proceed. There's a couple of lawsuits. You spoke to the yes. lawyer uh, who's representing a couple That's of young right. girls. That's right. I haven't heard what's the latest of that injunction. I know it was in court, uh, I think, Wednesday and yesterday. Mm. Um, I just haven't caught up on, on whether there's been a, a judgment on that. But I think that there's been all sorts of things come out on it this week. For example, you look at the form, the consent form, yeah. uh, which, which bluntly um, was, I think, at best, deeply misleading. Yeah. Uh, at worst, was, w- well, was, a, a, was a lot worse than that. Well, there's a lot of what they would that. call facts on it, which are not facts. Co- correct. And then you've got Professor, I think it was Chris Whitty, who came out and said that about half of all children have already had COVID. So hang on, if they've already had COVID and they had it with a sniffle or barely mm. knew they had it, maybe that's the best thing for them. Yes. They're not suffering from it. Healthy children as far as I'm aware, are most, most, most unlikely to be hospitalised with it. Yeah. Um, obviously, some have with, with medical conditions. So why are we, why are we vaccinating healthy children yeah. who actually, all the doctors I've spoken to, they say, you know, actually natural immunity gives you longer, yeah. stronger and immunity. Is, and the belief is that as many as half of the school population may have already had it, as you yes. say, so it's quite a big number. Um, and if you want to get your child vaccinated for whatever reason, because you worry that they're vulnerable, then go ahead and do it. Go ahead but and do it. The school should not be running these programmes. No, th- th- that's the point. I think it's it's the wrong way around. The, the onus at the moment, the suggestion is, you know, morally you should do the right thing, you should have it. And I think that's the wrong way around. Mm. I think, you know, I think it, it is a parental choice. Here's the information. The scientists, the, you know, the, actually the CMOs and the JCVI, they basically agree to disagree. Mm. Present that information. If you, the parents, have made your judgment for your family, everybody respects that. Uh, but actually, I think it's it's morally wrong to be, mm. be putting pressure. And at what cost? I mean, on we talk children. about and we talk about government expenditure. I mean, how much is it costing? We never hear that uh, being well, explained we, to us. We know it's billions. We know that give or take a million people are being tested every day. The yeah. vast majority, we suspect, are still children. Mm. And you talk about Denmark. Yeah, uh, Denmark have, apparently they've literally stopped everything. Yes. Today, I think, is the day that they say basically all restrictions are now lifted. There is absolutely no need for any of them. And it's the first EU country to return to pre-pandemic. See, that's a sign of leadership. That's a sign of, of, of proper leadership. Who's going to have the leadership in this country to say we need to stop this mass testing mm. of healthy people at vast, vast expense that is now actually most of it. All it's doing is worrying people. It's mm. causing anxiety. It's scaring people when actually we shouldn't be. We should be confident. We're well on top of this. We've got other challenges to face. Let's look at those yeah. uh, and, and treat this what it is, which is uh, it, it, we're going to live with it. We've got yeah. to learn to live with it. People will get The vast Ill. majority of people, people will get it, but actually natural immunity, you know, long term is the best way mm, forward. Absolutely. Richard, good to see you again. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you on Sunday at 10 uh, for more uh, of the sermons of Tice Talk, which are very, very highly recommended from the Independent Republic right here. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, let's talk to Dr. Tony Hinton, a retired surgeon with not only over 30 years experience of the job, but also uh, a man that speaks a great deal of common sense about COVID. Uh, Dr. Tony, very good morning to you. 
morning, Mike. I'm going to be hopping across to Denmark, um, not uh, actually literally, but virtually a little bit later on in the show, where today uh, they, are, they are the first EU country to li- literally lift all restrictions to go back to pre-pandemic normality. Um, they've obviously got the idea that uh, this disease is no longer a threat to public health. That's what they've said. Well, let's hope that common sense starts to spread wider. And in fact, when you listen to many people in the government, when you listen to the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, they keep repeating that we have to learn to live with this virus like we do with flu. Mm. But then they don't actually carry out the actions to do that. So, for instance, we've still got all this testing of healthy children. There should be no testing Mm. of anybody without symptoms. I go so far as to say, if you've got symptoms, stay at home. If you're ill enough to go to hospital, then maybe you need a test because it may change what treatment needs to be provided. Yes. Well, in Denmark, what they've said today is that basically there will be no further um, sending home of people who have been in contact with someone who got a positive test. The only people who will be told to quarantine will be people who are actually ill, which seems to make sense to me. And they've stopped testing altogether. Yeah, well... Most of those children that were being sent home before the summer um, because they'd been a contact or they were just in the same year group of another 100 kids, the vast majority of those never tested positive. They were all sent home for no good reason. Mm. If we get to use tests at all at school, it should be to keep children that have got symptoms in school, maybe test them for two or three days, and if all their tests are negative, bring them back. But don't test healthy children. But I agree, we don't routinely test people for the flu or any other coronavirus, of which this is going to be the fifth coronavirus that we just learned to live with. And it joins the other four that have been around for years and years that give us colds. Yes, and I think that's an eminently sensible way to go forward, isn't it? Because the fact remains, yes, there will be people who will get it. Yes, there will be people who will be sick from it and be quite ill from it. And there might even be a few people that die from it. But on the scheme of things, and particularly on some of the statistics we've been looking at in the past week or two, about the numbers of people who have died as a result of lockdown, as a result of not getting proper medical treatment for something else, it's clearly out of proportion now, isn't it? The main thing is we need a sense of proportion. And I don't think anybody would blame either the politicians or the medical hierarchy for the first month of the pandemic. Nobody knew what was going on. Everybody was confused. Everybody was frightened that this thing was going to maybe have a 1% or 2% fatality rate, Mm. which would have been absolutely appalling. But actually, very quickly, it became clear that it was much closer to flu. And in fact, for children, it's less damaging than the flu. And yet we've we've treated everyone the same. So we know what the risk factors are. It's old age, it's comorbidities, it's a high BMI. Mm. It's not fit, healthy young people. And everybody shouldn't be treated in the same basket. We could have protected those at risk for a fraction of the cost, both in economic terms, mental health terms, cancer treatment terms, the problems with heart disease. Um, Lockdowns, I'm afraid, will have killed far more people when the dust settles than COVID has Mm. at all. 
Yes, I think that's right. And speaking of young people, uh, this is this is appearing to be the week where schools are starting to send letters to parents about vaccinating their children. I know you, hey. like me, uh, are rather um, uh, against that idea uh, and certainly against the way it's being done. It is completely unnecessary. I do know teenagers that are going for this jab quite a lot. I do not know a single teenager that is going for this jab because they are worried about their health. They are going for the jab because they want to travel, they want to go to clubs, and they want to live their normal life. That should not be a reason why you have to take a medical treatment. Mm. Um, it's basically coercion, it's blackmail, it's totally unethical. And there are certainly be going to be uh, kids that get adverse reactions from this. Um, there may even be some deaths. Let's hope that's not the case, but certainly in the United States they have. Mm. And then we come to the issue of proper consent. Now, I'm a surgeon. I have to consent my patients properly. It's done once in the clinic, weeks and weeks before they come in for their operation. And then when they come in on the day as well, when they've had time to think it over again, we go through it all a second time. Mm. And that's proper good practice, according to the GMC. You look at these leaflets are going out, that they can hardly be described as informed consent. No. Also, you can't give informed consent to something that they can't explain to you because they cannot give you the facts that you would be asking them to provide because they don't know them. So how can you possibly be making a decision based upon what you don't know? Well, even the JCVI vaccine experts who say, on balance, don't vaccinate children, and the chief medical officers say do, but not on medical grounds, mm. on some spurious grounds of helping their mental health or keeping them at school. Right. Well, what efforts did the chief medical officer make with the government to make sure that children were kept at school throughout this. They managed it in other countries like Sweden. Yeah. No one seemed to care about keeping children at school or their mental health until they wanted to bring in the vaccinations. Yes. It seems like just a convenient excuse. It really does. And finally, um, Dr. Tony, what about long COVID? Because I noticed that Professor Sir John Bell, Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford University, today has basically said it's nothing like what people have been describing. And I wonder as well why some of your colleagues in the medical business are so keen to push long COVID as though that's a reason to keep us restricted. Well, there is a somebody that I've debated in the past. I won't mention the name. Another doctor who we've discussed long COVID. My view of long COVID, particularly in children, is it almost doesn't exist. And there's more and more data that shows that same thing. Mm. And then there was this recent um, ONS figures that came out that showed reporting for long COVID symptoms was almost the same in people that had COVID as people hadn't had COVID. So whatever is causing their symptoms, it's not COVID. It's mm. all the stuff that the government has put people through, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, and people like Professor Bell coming out now and saying that is fantastic because they obviously have a lot more pull and hopefully some influence with the government. But the person I was debating before going on about long COVID and pushing this long COVID thing 
it just so happens that some research that they do is sponsored by one of the vaccine manufacturers. So there's all sorts of funny stuff that's going on. Yeah, they're really... There, re- there really is, and there's so many questions that remain unanswered, partly because my colleagues don't ask the right questions when they get the opportunity to be sitting in front of those people that should be giving those answers. But as ever, Dr Tony Hinton, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Retired surgeon with over 30 years' experience. Also, a man that speaks an awful lot of common sense. He, of course, like me, does not consent uh, to children being vaccinated. He does not think there's any point to it. He's just called it propaganda. He's just called it a waste of everybody's time. And also potentially a risk because let's face it children cannot consent to something that they don't know anything about and if you ask questions about what it is that is going to happen to them in the future as a result of taking a vaccination at the age of 12 nobody can tell them so therefore you cannot make that decision based upon any kind of knowledge whatsoever because you don't have any it's as simple as that Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let's go across to Denmark. I promised this earlier on in the show, and we're going to speak to Stine Jacobson, uh, who is Reuters Denmark correspondent. She's been following, of course, all of the different twists and turns, as we all have in various different ways of all of the different EU countries and the way that they've responded. Um, Denmark has become the first EU country to go completely back uh, to pre-pandemic daily life. The vaccines uh, have worked to, to, to a large extent. Uh, the mask wearing has now no longer been uh, ordered to be um, uh, made to uh, made to be legal to wear. Uh, they've also lifted all the testing regimes and they've said basically that uh, life goes back to normal. Stine, very good morning to you. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. Um, tell us, I suppose, because we haven't spoken really to, to you before, uh, what's the last 18 months been like um, in Denmark and what's it like now? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, the, the thing is you, you quite quickly forget uh, how, how it used to be because now if you take a stroll at the streets of Copenhagen, everything is normal. Right. No one is wearing a mask, you know, 
uh, not even in, in, in public transportation where people stand close. Um, there are still test centers, but I mean, nobody really uses them. And, and so, I mean, last, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, 50,000 people gathered uh, at the National Stadium here in Copenhagen uh, at a concert. You know, uh, everything was exactly as, as it used to be. So that's sort of what it looks like yeah. now. Of course, we will see maybe it changes going into winter, but for right now, very much business as usual. And when was it probably at its worst in terms of restrictions? What what time of, of, of the pandemic was that? Yeah, I think that the number of cases peaked in December. Right. Um, and uh, so, so at that time, many of the restrictions had been lifted and they were then reimposed and so, but probably in, in, in the beginning of the pandemic, so back in, what was it, March, April um, 2020, uh, and everything was shut down and it was really shut down. Uh, so I think Denmark was very quickly to, to act. Uh, and they have then also been one of the first countries uh, in the world to 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 reopen and and get rid of all restrictions. Right. Uh, okay. So because the the country has more or less declared that the virus is, uh, I think, in their words, no longer a critical threat to society. So what sort of level of infection have you got down to now? Yeah, the the level of effect, infections are quite low. Um, so I mean, it peaked there in December, and they have just kept falling since then. Uh, so the R rate, you know, the, the number which indicates how many, mm. how, how the disease is, is sort of uh, spread to society is below one. So right. I think it's around 0.7, which is a very good indicator, you know, that, that fewer and fewer people are, are getting it. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think the total number of deaths have been some 5,600 in, in total, and we have a population of... 5.8 million so so per wow. capita that is quite low yes yeah. that is very low isn't it so 5.6 uh, thousand five and a half thousand altogether uh yes let me just uh, check here but i think that was no no sorry not even that it's two two thousand six hundred and thirty eight deaths that's um, very low isn't it yeah, it is very low. Because we find it quite frustrating in, in this country because we feel as though, uh, a lot of us do anyway, not everyone, uh, that, that you what you're doing is the right way to, to kind of to cope with all of this and to do it uh, in a way which is kind of um, led by the science, as, as we like to be told by our politicians. But, you know, we've mm. suddenly, I mean, we're looking at all manner of higher, much higher numbers than that. And some people say in this country, yeah, but that's because we were counting differently. We were counting people who died in hospital who didn't necessarily go in with COVID, got covid and then died you know and it seems as though uh, you guys have done it a lot cleverer and a lot better than than the uk has yeah i mean i wouldn't be the right person to answer that really <laughs> but uh, but, <laughs> but uh but it seems like i think for the nordic countries in general so also for norway uh finland uh, you can discuss sweden then they have all managed the and Iceland has all have all managed the the pandemic very well and maybe it has something to do with the high trust in in sort of authorities that you actually do what <laughs> what you're told so you stay at home and don't see more people than you're told to mm. and then could be but but it's it's really only a guess. Yes, because some people have, of, have often said to me that Sweden's success rate is down to the fact that it's not such a highly populated country. But I'm sure Copenhagen is just as uh, highly populated in the parts of Copenhagen where people live as London is, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And and you've also seen that the spread has been very much in Copenhagen and other big cities, of course, where people live live close. Yes. Uh, 
So, so yeah. And so, and if you have people who are much more trusting, say, of the government, um, does that mean that your government is popular? government is quite popular. I think it's beginning to, to, to sort of face reality after the pandemic. It has sort of a safe period uh, during the crisis where, you know, everybody was just doing what it said. But, but of course, these things are now being questioned. Uh, but as you also mentioned earlier, so now it's the, the COVID-19 is no longer sort of a, a, a disease critical to society, meaning that the government can't just reimpose these restrictions they would then need to seek a mandate right. with uh, with other parties. So they, they kind of lo lost a bit of their power, but but they are, I mean, it's a social democratic government and it is quite popular still, yeah. And that's music to my ears that they've lost a bit of power because I think in this country, they're consistently trying to grab more power to tell us even more things that we need to be doing. What sort of um, uh, levels of healthcare have suffered in your country? Because in the UK, a lot of people uh, have not been able to get treatment in the health service because of COVID, not because um, there were so many people being treated, but just because so much of the health service shut down. Um, people couldn't mm. see doctors, people couldn't get um, regular kind of appointments with doctors in hospital, they couldn't get cancer screenings done. There was an awful lot of knock-on effects, if you know what I mean. So has the health service in general in Denmark worked pretty well? Yeah, they have been coping very well with it. So they set up a lot of like emergency um, units with extra beds, etc. But they haven't really been used. I mean, so there's been capacity uh, to, to, to deal with, uh, with the cases. And it hasn't really been, I mean, of course, it will always be a strain on, on the healthcare system to have a pandemic, but yeah. it hasn't really been a big issue. There hasn't been like a, a lot of uh, surgeries postponed or anything like that. Uh, right. Recently, there was a strike among the nurses, and that has an impact, but that is an un, uh, unrelated issue right. to COVID-19, yeah. Okay, and what about tourism? How has that been affected? Uh, of course, we had a long period when nobody came, right? And then I think the Germans and the Norwegians started coming back. And I live in the center of Copenhagen and, and a big uh, big five-star hotel just opened right next to me. And then it seems like there are a lot of guests and you can sort of begin to sense in the streets that people are speaking foreign languages. Uh -huh. uh, so so they're, they're coming back, but not to the same degree. And, and we haven't seen the same amount of, for example, Asian tourists, right. or perhaps U US tourists. We had a big, uh, you know, harbor with cruise ships. Obviously that hasn't started uh, yet. Don't know if right. and when that will okay. happen. And just as a, as a personal thing, Stine, do you know a lot of people that got COVID? Um, because that's always a question that I ask people in this country. I mean, we all know people who have had it and it's treated many of them very differently. Do you, do, do, yeah. do, do you know a lot of people that had it? To be a fan, no, actually not. No, I don't. Uh, I haven't had it myself, mm -hmm. to my knowledge. Uh, and not a lot of people uh, know around me. So um, so it's not really something that, that has been a, a, a big issue for, for me or for my friends or family, Interesting. Uh, luckily. And do yeah. you have many people still who are sort of frightened of it? Because we do. Yeah, but I think, I mean, it varies from, from different groups, right? So if you're vulnerable or elderly, then you're, of course, more more... I mean, or if you have some kind of uh, disease where you should be more careful. But I think for the, I mean, and, and if you just look out of the window, I mean, you can see that people are not afraid. I mean, they are sort of standing very close and, and mm. talking and everything. So it doesn't seem, but of course there will be 
areas where you will still be be cautious uh, and should be and should be probably yes for sure Stine brilliant to talk to you thank you very much indeed for your help Stine Jacobson there Reuters Denmark correspondent uh, with what it's like in Denmark it's incredible isn't it because if you were to say for example multiply their population by 12 which would get you to the population that we've got that would mean that something like the equivalent of 36,000 people died of COVID there which is a tiny fraction of the numbers of people that supposedly died of COVID here that seems a bit odd to me, doesn't it? Does it seem a bit odd to you? 0344 499 1000. We'll take some calls on that as well, of course. Many of you want to talk to me today. We'll try and get to all of you. Andy in Birmingham has tweeted, texted in rather, to 87222. He said, Morning, Mike. Many hauliers will not wish to take on inexperienced drivers due to the difficulties insuring anyone driving for less than two years. If they are able to obtain insurance for them, they are likely to be subject to an additional inexperienced driver's excess. Well, that may well be true too. I can, I can see why that would be the case. But clearly what the problem here is, is not that we have a shortage of HGV drivers. We've got plenty of people who can drive HGV vehicles. It's just that they're not able to find the kind of employment that they want to find. So it looks to me like a bit of a red tape scenario, doesn't it? How surprising that things don't work that well in the HGV business, just like everything else that doesn't work very well in any business in this country. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we do like to think of ourselves as the home of common sense, so let us try and get some. Let's try and get to the bottom of what is actually going on. There's all sorts of warnings, dire uh, consequences coming, winters of discontent, winters of incompetence, as Richard Tice was saying earlier. I think that might be closer to the truth. Let's talk to Shane Brennan from the Cold Chain Federation. He's the chief executive. Shane, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Now, I'm rather hoping that you're going to uh, congratulate me wholeheartedly for uh, trying to inject a little bit of common sense into this slightly hysterical morning uh, that people seem to be having. They seem to be under the impression that whenever somebody says, don't go and panic buy petrol, it means the complete opposite. I certainly congratulate you on trying to dip, dampen down hysterics because that doesn't help anybody. You're absolutely right. The single biggest cause of shortages on the shelf or shortage of petrol will be people buying more than they need. Yeah. And that's our experience from last year in the food supply chain was when we had that period in February and March where people suddenly started panic buying from the supermarkets. Um, not only did we have a massive interruption in supplies there and then, we also then saw a couple of weeks later loads and loads of food being thrown away because people just bought way more than they needed. Right, exactly right. So what is the actual sort of overview? Uh, I, know, I know it's complicated. I know there are many facets to it. But could you describe to us why we are certainly worried about running out of stuff at this moment? Supply chains are under massive stress. You know, let's be clear, 18 months, for the last 18 months, we have kept the nation fed through COVID. We've, that, that's what people have gone up on to work to do. When other people were staying in their houses, they were turning up and doing, doing the job. As we sort of started to come out of that and people are feeling like things are getting back to normal and things are opening back up, the supply chain, has, we've gone out to look for the people to come back to work in the supply chain and they're not there in the same numbers they were there before. People's lives have changed. You know, people have retired out of the industry. Some of the people that weren't living in the UK or families were in the UK have gone home. And all those things have come together to create a, a significant shortage. And that's meant that the people that, were, that we've relied on for the last 18 months are having to do another wave, probably a more intensive wave of, of work than they had to do previously. And, and, they're, and they're finding it really hard. I'm not going to deny that. It's incredibly hard to get the, the job done right now in the food supply chain. Yeah. I mean, I'm being told that the shortage of HGV drivers is less a shortage than, an, than a kind of a red tape problem, i.e. some haulage companies don't wish to hire inexperienced drivers, which I'm, which I'm led to believe could have something to do with the cost of insuring them. Um, also, similarly, many of them don't wish to employ people on a kind of more regular basis and would rather use agency staff because it turns out to be cheaper that way. Um, similarly, that you know there isn't an actual shortage of, of individuals. There's just a shortage of 
people who want to be paid a bit more money and who want to get better conditions coming forward to do the jobs that are required? Well, those are all, those are all reasons. You're absolutely right. You've listed a number of reasons why there's a problem with shortage. That doesn't really help the person who's trying to work out how they get their lorries working working tomorrow no. and the stress on the people that are already in the, in the, in the chain. Um, and I guess what we're looking for is 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 well, we need to do two things. One one is we need to sort of look at how we can start having a plan in place for the long medium term to get some people back into the industry, get new people into the industry. That needs to happen. But we also need to work out how we're going to start releasing some of the pressure. Mm. Because the problem is the pressure, if you go to work every day and there's more work to be done than you can actually realistically get done, and then you go back, then you go home and you go back the next day and it's the same situation. That actually demotivates the people there. And actually we're losing people because of the stress they're under. So we do need to think about some short-term interventions mm. that will make a difference. Yes. And so what would your view be of the one suggested currently by the government or by some in the government, which is to bring in uh, more uh, lorry drivers from Europe uh, and give them visas to work here? Because my understanding of, of, of some people's view is that um, that will reduce the, uh, the, the, the higher ability, if you like, of British drivers at higher cost. I think we need both. I think we, we need drivers from, from every source we can get them. And, you know, European drivers were a significant part of our workforce pre-pandemic. You know, 15, 20% of our workforce mm. were non-UK nationals. A lot of them went home because of the pandemic. They didn't go home because of Brexit. Or they went home because of the pandemic. Right. But the problem is we don't know if they're coming back. Right. So there's a question. So there is an issue with that. Um, but I, I certainly also take the point that, you know, the strategy, the government strategy, the, the, the strategy is to bring in more British drivers and make sure that we have more jobs for British people in, in the industry. But that will take time, whether it's bringing people back, which hopefully we can do. But if we can bring on new generation of, of drivers, it will take six months for that sort of for any initiatives that we start now to, to, to have effects. And, see if, and that won't help us particularly at the Christmas time. Mm. And I think probably the thing that's front of mind for most people in the food supply chain is normally everything about the food supply chain is get ready for Christmas. Christmas is the key time. Christmas is the key time for making money. It's the key time for, for, for servicing the, the peak of demand in the supply chain. Mm. And right now, it feels like a bridge too far in terms of the ability to actually to resource that. So we need to start thinking about a different right. strategy. And I've seen from some of your tweets that there's also warehousing issues. There's issues at all kind of points, if you like, of, of the chain. Is that as a result of people not being available to work as well? Exactly. And this is the problem. Yeah, we talk a lot about drivers. It is the shorthand, but actually it's job, it's job shortages across the supply chain. And it's again, it's that dislocation. We've been living a very different experience the last 18 months and people's lives have changed and they're now rethinking what they want to do. So, and, and actually there's still a bit of a reset going on. And at the moment we haven't got enough people to go looking for the jobs. And it isn't just about, it isn't about pay necessarily because pay rates have gone up dramatically in the last few months. You know, drivers are earning 20, 30% more available to them for their, for their salaries. Mm. And that isn't in itself leading to them coming back into work. The same in the warehouses. And that cost pressure, that fundamental step change in wage cost has to be paid for in the end. And I think we have to be clear about some of the inflationary pressures some of that will have on on our economy and it, it probably is the right thing and i you know the heroes of our pandemic probably need to be paid more but we have to be prepared for the consequences of that in terms of the cost of our weekly groceries and everything else sure uh glenn has, has sent me a tweet and he says mike i'm an hgv driver uh, i had to join a gym at a cost of 70 pounds a month just so that i could have a shower every night in a clean hygienic place as the facilities at truck stops and services are disgusting no wonder people don't want to join the industry this is something i've heard quite a bit about as well that conditions as well as pay are very very um low rent if you uh, for want of a better phrase um why is that too many years of underinvestment and it's and the industry underinvesting, but it's also just the general infrastructure that we rely on in our you know our motorway networks our our parking our parking facilities are just massively poor quality and that has a massive impact on willingness to do a job and that is 
as important as pay. But it's also about the attitude of people to drivers and lorry drivers. I mean, how many people have tutted at the idea mm. of a lorry driver that's holding them up on the motorway, or they've looked at someone parking in a lay-by and thinking that's that they don't, they don't approve of it. Well, these are people trying to. This is the people living their lives, trying to do a, a crucial job. So we have to reset what mm. we think and how we value the people that do this job. We were clapping them during the pandemic. We need to be uh, appreciating them. Now. Yeah. Do you think we've got? This may sound like a bit of an odd question, but do you think we've got too much stuff as well? So this is this, this is in reality. Actually, when it comes down to it, we can argue about immigration. We can argue about DVSA licensing requirements and stuff. But fundamentally, the supply chain isn't going to reset and it isn't going to go back to normal in the next few weeks. We are going to go through to Christmas with supply chain shortages. Yeah. Not empty shelves, but supply chain shortages. And so we're going to have to have a different mentality about Christmas this year. People are going to have to think ahead. They have to plan to buy what they need in, in reasonable timeframes and not do the pilot high, sell it cheap, last minute, uh, panic buy approach to Christmas that we've, that we've become accustomed to. And much as that you know, would be a lovely thing to think we could get back to that kind of normality, we're going to have to think differently this year. Yeah, but I've never understood really the, the, the British shopper, if you'll pardon the expression, because, you know, I always marvel at the idea that you walk around a shop at sort of Christmas Eve and they're literally buying everything. And you go, it's only one day they're shut for. It's not like they're shut for a week. It's not like you won't be able to buy anything until January. You know, they're closed on Christmas Day. You can probably get through with a couple of dozen mince pies and a couple of chickens and some sausages. You know, it really amazes me how busy the shops actually get. Yeah, and I think that sort of pilot high, sell it cheap mentality that goes through the Christmas that we've we've created that situation for ourselves, partly yeah. through customer behaviour, partly through retailers' behaviour. This year, you've got to talk to your supply chain people. What can we actually get on the shelf hmm. and plan accordingly? Not get it there by all costs. We've been victims of our own success probably for too many years. The, the, the retail director says, I want X and we deliver it. Yeah. That isn't the reality today. Today it's what can we do and let's plan on that basis. Yeah. And let's talk to customers about that. But that's kind of what I meant about do we have too much stuff? Because, you know, there are so many different things now that you can buy. And I say this as a child of the 70s, you know, when we used to go into a shop and there was only like one thing you could get. Now, I'm not saying we should go back to that, but, you know, you don't really need 12 different varieties of aero, do you? No, and range consolidation, it's happening already. And this is the thing, we need to be transparent about it. Supermarkets are, and some manufacturers are reducing the number of lines that they're producing in order to make the supply chain more simple. And that is the, the what you do when you have less resource. That's what's happening. Customers, I think, can accept that, will accept that, as long as we communicate it right and we don't get right. a sense of panic, and to use the word again, that people say, well, oh my God, there aren't, there's only two varieties of this type of bread, therefore there isn't enough food on the shelf. Right. And in reality, there's plenty. Yeah, exactly. So if you, Shane, were able to sit in front of Boris Johnson right now and give him three ideas that he could use quickly, straight away, that would ease the pressure on, on your guys, what would that be? We need to, you know, sort we need to sort out the problems that are driving licensing authority and make sure they are working efficiently. Well, they're definitely not no working barriers. efficiently. They're pretty, pretty much operating as if they were closed. Yeah. I know, I know this is one you don't like. We, I do think we do need some, we need to make it, we need to be, be more attractive to people from that were working here from overseas and let them and find a way. To I'm not against that, up. Shane, at all. I'm, I'm absolutely not against that. But all I would say is that if it drives down the cost uh, of labour, then that's not good for the drivers here. Yeah, but that's not going to happen with with overseas labour because, partly because the pound against the euro and stuff is, is so weak, actually. The cost of, you know, to attract those sorts of drivers, the same drivers as it would be for domestic workforce. It needs to, the price, the wages need to go up and that's what needs to happen. Right. Just don't need to limit our options on that. Right. Um, and thirdly, we need to start talking to customers about the fact that it is going to be different this year. It's not back to normal. It is going to be, we're still in the pandemic. The pandemic legacy will continue in terms of our supply chains right the way through the Christmas period. And we just have to basically work together. The spirit of last year's pandemic collaboration 
carries on through to this Christmas. Okay. Well, I'm sure Christmas will be just fine. I mean, I think we just need to as well stop telling people to panic uh, and to worry and to be concerned and just, you know, cut your cloth. Shane, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Shane Brennan, Cold Chain Federation Chief Executive, with some good ideas there for Boris Johnson. So we do need some people uh, to add in to the mix, right? We do need more drivers. But certainly from listening to many of you out there who are drivers, it's also a cost a cost of living scenario. You don't and never should have to put up with bad conditions of work. You you shouldn't have to put up with bad pay. You shouldn't have to put up with long hours, uh, which to, to many extents are illegal. You know, the whole haulage business clearly seems like it's out of kilter with the rest of society. There are haulage firms who are not doing what they should be doing for their drivers. There are drivers who are not able to get what they want because they won't sign particular pieces of paper. They're not well looked after. Not, they don't have good places to go and wash and change and get ready to go to sleep in a truck, which I don't think I would want to do. Um, but if there are vacancies, I, let's hear about them. Let's find out where those vacancies are. Uh, and also, I really do think people have got to get out of this ridiculous mentality that it's a good idea to queue up for petrol. I mean, if you're sitting in a petrol queue right now listening to this, just leave. Get out of the queue. If you don't need petrol, you don't need petrol. Just don't get it. Wait until tomorrow. Wait until next week. Deal with it. (laughs) 